I want to start in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, um, 14 to 15. Uh, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Actually, verse 11 is one of my favorites. I got to use it at a wedding, and I thought it was perfect for their wedding. But 3.11, we're not going to be here long, so if you're going to flip and tap your way there, that's fine. Um, but we're actually going to be predominantly in Luke chapter 4 this morning. But he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Skipping to four, verses 14 and 15. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which has already been, that which is to be, already has been. And God speaks what has been driven away. God sees larger than we see. He is able to put into place things that we are yet to imagine. He knows what's going to happen 10 years from now. He is part of what's happened thousands of years ago in our past. And he says that God declares it again and again through the book of Ecclesiastes that he is the only thing that will remain constant. Your schedule will change. Your limits will change. But God will remain constant. And that's what we want to see this morning. He is the only thing that is not our vanity. If you've ever read Ecclesiastes before, he says vanity, vanity, or meaningless, meaningless. All life is meaningless. It's a great book to read in the winter, um, when, especially in Ohio with gray skies. And you're like, man, I just need more depression in my life. I'm just going to read Ecclesiastes. That's what it is. And so he just says, everything is a vapor. Everything is a breath. Everything is a mist. And we are here for not very long. And so don't get all caught up in yourself because your life is a vapor and a mist. And he says, it in, the only thing that will endure is himself. He sets seasons. He sets eternity. He sets every boundary that we push against. He sets it up. Ace, the, the whole of Ecclesiastes is this, that vanity is a life without limits. That's, that's pretty much what we're going to be talking about all of this morning. And you can use vanity in the sense of the Hebrew word, which is this idea of vapor or mist. I think it even relates well to this idea of vanity in today's day and age where we use the word and it rings of self-ego and, and narcissism of our own lives being more important than other people. And, and it's this whole thing that, that is fed into this idea of me, me, me. Now, the image of Ecclesiastes, if you read the entire book and what we're going to be looking at this morning in Luke chapter 4, there's an image that I want you to get into your head this morning, and, and the image is that of my garage. If I were to take you to my garage, uh, for those who are um, clean freaks, you would, run in, you would run in terror of my garage. Your giving needs to go up. I'm, just, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I just need to be important. I just need to be more proactive in buying new stuff. Okay, so we're good. I'm kidding. Gosh, that was mean, Joel. I know. Fuck. <laughs> um, image of Ecclesiastes is this idea of my garage, right? And so it, it is uh, meant to be clean. Um, and it's been idea of clean since 2014. Um, and I've, I've had really good goals of trying to... Uh, get this thing clean, and it hasn't happened at all because every time I, I'm close, I feel like something else moves in to my garage. There's no limits in my garage for what always enters into it. I swear there are times where people just put them in my garage without me knowing it just to see how I react. I think it's neighbors. I think it's friends. I think it's some of you. Like you just stop in, you're just like, watch this. 
and you put it in the garage. And I'm like, where did that come from? Because my garage is that constant thing where I just really keep um, piling and piling and piling and more and more and more and more and more stuff. And I, I, I don't ever eliminate. I always accumulate. I always just kind of put more and more in. And, I, and as I keep putting more and more in, my hope is that it will magically just disappear. Like someday I'm just going to walk into my garage. It's going to be completely clean. I'm going to be able to be a good local and put a TV in my garage because that's what all my neighbors do. And, and it's going to be great. And I'm going to be able to watch. I don't know what I'm going to watch. And in there, um, which side note, by the way, Mark is not here this morning. I he's online, but he uh, sent me a text as the Big Ten news came down a couple weeks ago. And he goes, do you need a care package? Do you need a warm meal brought over? And I'm like, yes, this kind of grief is deep. Um, but as I think of my garage, it's this thing that just keeps accumulating. So many things are just in it. And I just assume that someday it's just going to disappear. And I think of our schedules and our lives are kind of the same way. We just accumulate and accumulate and accumulate and keep saying yes and yes and yes. I can do that. I can do that. And I can do that. And we just hope that someday it's going to make sense. We just hope that one day it's all going to be clear. Our schedules are going to be at an even pace, but yet we never, ever say no. We never uh, think about what is meant to go in our garages. We just keep accumulating, 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 and we never, ever eliminate what's there. And here's the reality of this series that we've been in and this idea of what to do when you don't know what to do. A lot of times we don't know what to do because our lives are so overfilling or overfull with our schedules and our, our limits that we push them to the max that we don't understand what we need to do. And this morning I want to kind of show you um, that life without limits is not how we were meant to be made or how to live. Our lives were meant to be lived with limits. And we're going to see that in just a second. But when your life gets out of control, we not only need clarity over certainty. We talked about that the first week. We not only need to build a wise team around us, but this morning we need to talk about that vanity is a life lived without limits. This morning, I want us to learn to embrace our limits. Our lives may feel like that never clean garage. Mine does. And just when you have margin in your life, something else fills that space. We live in the constant pressure to keep the plate spinning and keep accumulating more tasks and relationships, and we believe that we can do it all. And here are some truths, though. Here, here's, I want you to hear these couple of things. They, these may be the, what you need this morning um, before we even get into Luke chapter 4. If you don't set your own limits, someone else will. Just truth, right? I mean, if, if you're not willing to say no, somebody else will do that for you. Or if you're not willing to set your own limits, your health may set that limit for you. And you don't want to get there. So if you don't set your own limits, someone else will. Uh, Number two, if you never say no, you will live in the chaos of always saying yes. If you never say no, you're always going to be living in the chaos of every yes that you've said to somebody. Three, you are not limitless. You are not a limitless God, but you serve one. So stop trying to live without limits. The knowledge of a a sovereign God, the fact that we serve a God who is sovereign, should allow you to live within your limits. And my hope this morning is you'll learn how to live that life that he's called you to and not the life that others have asked you to live for them. That's That's a very big distinction this morning. So in um, Luke chapter 4 is where we're going to be, so you can turn there. And as we do, I want you to see that living without limits comes natural to us. It, it's just a way of living, especially, I don't know if it's just cultural, but we just automatically are good at living without limits. 
Let me, let me share a couple things out of a book by the uh, title of Essentialism. This is a book by Greg McGowan. This is a, a fantastic book. It's, it's not even a, a Christian book. It's just one that's it's more of a leadership style book. But there's so many good principles that he draws from in here. And here's a couple things he talks about in why we live limitless lives. Here's some things that kind of feed why we're there. Too many choices, right? We live in a world with too many choices. We live in a world of the Cheesecake Factory menu. Have you seen the menu at Cheesecake Factory? I mean, for those who like, have you been there before? You look at the menu, you're like, ah! Others of you in the room, like a Debbie Debussy, would just like, send me whatever. Not me. Like, I just need like three things on the menu. You flip through that thing. It's like a whole Encyclopedia Britannica. I mean, you're like switching page after page. There's so many things and too many choices that you just be like, I don't know, just send me the Parmesan. I don't know, right? Because there's too many choices. And especially with social media today, there's so many choices that are affecting you that we're almost living in the Cheesecake Factory versus living on what we do on vacation at Myrtle Beach. And our only two choices on vacation ever are well, three, food, pool, or beach. Those are our three choices that we live by every single day. We get up, and we're like, what are we going to eat? Are we going to be at the pool? Or are we going to be at the beach? Those are our choices, right? It's not the Cheesecake Factory, just so many. There are too many choices in our world. Not only are there too many choices, but he says there's also too much social pressure to do the right thing, to say yes to the right thing. Um, the other thing that is part of how we get limitless is the lie that you can do and you have to have it all. The lie that you can do it all and have it all. We would never truly maybe embrace that or say that, but our schedules and your calendars may tell you that. That I can do it all. I can, I can add one more thing. It's not a problem. I got big shoulders. I can handle it. Not a big deal. When we believe that the lie, the lie that, that multitasking is godly. Do you remember a couple years back in leadership in church world, there was a big phase that went through the church world and there was this idea of multitasking. And I remember conversations with head pastors and leaders are like, if you're not multitasking, you're really not being effective. And so you should be able to answer that call, do the email and process the sermon all at the same time. You're like, what? And we bought into that lie for probably a good year and a half. And I was like, if I'm not multitasking, I'm not doing anything. That has since changed, thank God. And there's many that have just said that was a foolish thing to try and do, to multitask. Because whenever you multitask, you're never truly multitasking. You're always single tasking. But you want to believe that you're multitasking. But you're really, you're really not. You can't do three jobs at the same time. You have to be in the moment. We believe that we are multitasking and it's a good thing. Um, when, when three jobs are kind of the, the norm, we can handle all both or all three. Um, some of it is not only the, the lie that we can do it all, have it all. Some of it is the lie that we need, it's our own need for validation. We need to be told that we're a good person. We need to be accepted. We can't say no because then they're going to feel bad if I say no to whatever that is. And then I'm going to have to make another phone call. I have to explain my no. There's a lot of validation. Other ones, it's our need to not miss out on something, right? I can't ever miss out because I don't want to be the last to know. I got to know the news story before it happens. Or, or last, it's maybe guilt or comparison that, that fuels your, your limitless living. Like, I just can't say no because I've always grown up in a house that you just do for people. And if you're not doing for people, you're not a good person. I don't know what your, your list is, but I'm going to guess it's probably somewhere in this range, and all of them, I think, feel, feed, feel, feed again this idea of narcissism, that I am the beginning and the end of my own life. And all these push us to live a life without limits. 
There's a chart he gives, and I'm not going to go through all of it, but it's just a really interesting way of looking at it. He says this in this chart. You probably won't be able to read a lot of it, so I just kind of walk through. But a non-essentialist or those who are uh, living a limitless life, they believe they can be all things to all people. He thinks that I can have to do, I have to do it. it it's thinking it's all important. It, it thinks, how can I fit it all in? The essentialist, those who live within limits, he says, live with less but better. I choose to. Only a few things matter. What are the trade-offs of this? The, the, the undisciplined person does this. He reacts to what's most pressing. He says yes to people without thinking. He tries to force execution at the last moment. The, the limited person pauses to serve what really matters, says no to everything except the essential, removes obstacles to making execution easy. And then lastly, he says that the, the, the limitless person gets, this person who lives without limits takes on too much and work suffers, feels out of control, is unsure whether the right things are getting done, and often feels overwhelmed and exhausted. Whereas the limited person who knows that they live within limits chooses carefully feels in control, gets the right things done, and actually experiences joy in the journey, to which many of us are like, there's joy to be found in this? That's awesome. (laughs) I haven't seen it yet, but that sounds really cool. All of these things are part of this idea of living with limits. And I want to give you an example uh, in the life of Jesus and how Jesus lived within limits. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 4, we're going to kind of just breeze through parts of it, but I'm going to center on the middle. So Luke chapter 4, is, is written about the life of Christ. But here's what you need to know about Luke chapter 4 and Luke in general. The book of Luke actually writes thematically and not chronologically. So what do I mean by that? That means that like if you look, read through the book of Luke, it doesn't all happen sequentially. Verse happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. Instead, what Luke does is he draws a bunch of different stories and he throws them into a chapter and he says, here's a theme that I want you to get from this chapter. If you read the book of Mark, you're going to see far more chronological. You're going to see Mark uses the word, uh, what's the word he uses a lot? Um, uh, I can't remember now off the top of my head. Uh, it's idea, oh, immediately. He says, immediately this happened, and immediately this happened, immediately this happened. So Mark goes chronologically, whereas Luke is more thematically. And so Luke in chapter four is giving us a theme this morning. And one of the themes he's giving us is Jesus' start to his ministry And I want to kind of share some things out of here. So Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, tells the story of Jesus' temptation in the desert, and then he moves us into the start of his ministry. And I love that Dr. Luke starts us off in the life of Jesus' public ministry by highlighting Jesus' ability to live within his own limits. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 15, is the overview of his ministry, And I love that he says this as he starts off. This is important in verses 14 to 15. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Now, the power of the Holy Spirit took him into the desert, and the power of the Spirit says he brought him back into starting his ministry. I think when we live without limits, it is telling the Holy Spirit, there's no room for you in my schedule to work. I can't waste time waiting on God to respond or waiting on the Holy Spirit to to move. I've just got to be proactive and I just got to do it. To which many of us will get into a lot of things that we are not supposed to be part of because we haven't built prayer into our life and asked God's help to say, is this something I should be doing? And praying and needing the Holy Spirit's guidance in our life. If Jesus, the Son of God, was powered by the Holy Spirit to start his ministry, we have caution and pause to think, 
Am I allowing the Holy Spirit to speak into my choices and into my calendar? Or do I just kind of push him off to the side and say, he'll help me, he'll get me through. I just got to schedule it for him. No, he is here. He is wanting to be part of this decisions. And Jesus knows this, powered by the Holy Spirit, he begins his ministry. And he begins his ministry in all places in Capernaum. Verses 31 to 44 talk about this ministry in Capernaum. And in Capernaum was this town in the Middle East. It was a small little fishing town on the Sea of Galilee. And it's kind of his home base. And if you think of the Son of God being this God without limits and this amazing, powerful God of the Old Testament, and to think that he starts his ministry in a small town, in a fishing village, in a house with Peter, you kind of wonder, does he really know what he's doing? Because if I was Jesus and I had to save the entire planet, I might want to start somewhere a little more known, a little more populated, but Jesus starts in Capernaum. And in Capernaum, he drives out a demon, he heals mother's, uh, Peter's mother-in-law, and he preaches and he heals. But it's in Nazareth in 16 to 30 that we're going to read that we see Jesus living within his limits. And there's a couple Easter eggs hidden in here before we get in. But, but chapter 4, reading verses 16 to 21. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll on the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So he, he goes into the Sabbath on this day, and he does what any good rabbi does, is he goes in and he reads the passage. Well, he reads a passage. We don't know if it was the, the passage that was, well, it does there, the passage that was given to him. So basically there was the passage of the day. He comes in, he reads it out of Isaiah, and he reads this passage. And in this passage, you're going to start to see that him reading this reveals that hometowns are, huff, are tough to do ministry. And he grew up in this town. They're not going to respect him in this town. And we also are going to see in this passage that Jesus reads the only part of the Messianic text from Isaiah chapter 61 when everyone in the room would have been able to identify that as a Messianic text that says that Christ the Messiah had come. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, verses 18 and 19 is where Jesus reads. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Which, just side note, if you're writing these things down, if you take notes, the, the Spirit, Holy Spirit, the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord, that's Yahweh Lord, is upon me. The Trinity has just been spoken over the people of Nazareth. Isn't that crazy? He says, the Spirit, Holy Spirit of Yahweh is upon me. All three Trinity is here because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the people are like, whoa, this is him. This is the Messiah. This is Jesus who was promised to come. And yet the people in the audience would have said, you didn't finish the text because Jesus doesn't finish the text. In Isaiah verses 1 and 2, he only reads verse 1 and 2a. He doesn't read 2b. If you were to read 2b, it would say this. He's here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. The town of Nazareth wanted Jesus as the Messiah, 
but they wanted him for a very specific purpose. They wanted him to call down the day of vengeance of God upon those in Rome. That's what the Messiah would do. He would come, he would set up his kingdom, he would finally take out the superpower called Rome, and we, the Israelites, would live forever, and this would be awesome because the Messiah was to come and dominate the planet. Jesus comes, can you imagine that? And he reads this text, and everybody in the room would have been like, what about, what about, you gotta finish, you gotta finish the text. You're supposed to take over everybody next. This is how this works. First limit Jesus puts in here, I'm in charge. I set the agenda. You're not telling me what to do. I came for this purpose to free those who are caught in these things. Remember, Jesus, but you're supposed to come and do all the things like take out Rome and and vengeance and justice. Remember, and Jesus right off the bat is shrinking the responsibilities here. They may think, what's what's this all about? And then you get into verse 20 and 22. And, And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now, originally we can kind of think he sat down as kind of a mic drop. That's not what happened here. Uh, Actually, his rolling up the scroll and sitting down was actually how people taught in that day. So they would actually sit and the person in authority had so much authority that even has his sitting was this idea of like, wow, we got to gather around this guy. This is important. So he sits down as the rabbis would have done in that day. And he began to say to them, today, the scripture has been filled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And so they're all, highlight that word all, that's going to come in later. They were all amazed at him. Doubtless, you, he says to them, doubtless you, would, doubtless you would quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. So they've heard all these amazing things that he's done out in Capernaum of the delivering this demon, all these kind of things. But now he's back here and they say, do that here. Do all those magic tricks and miracles and, and, and make that happen right here in our hometown. Physician, heal yourself was a Greek proverb that basically meant, hey, do that thing here. Prove your worth here. What you've heard of Capernaum do here. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath and the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah. None of them was cleansed, but only Nahum the Syrian. So he basically is telling them this. In this proverb, I'm not here to do the magic tricks you want me to do. Here's his main point. He is not a puppet to do their bidding. He is a prophet under the limits and the authority of God. He says, I am here under the limits and the authority that God has put me on. He has put me here for a purpose and here are my limitations. And he gives two big examples of his limitations that he has not sent to everyone, but he has sent to specific people for a specific purpose. Read verses 23 to 28. He talks about Elijah and Elisha. If you know the story in 1 Kings 17, Elijah was told to go into this town. And in this town were all these Israelites living. And instead of going to an Israelite, Elijah goes to a Gentile outcast woman widow. And not only does he go to her for food, but he lives there for a while. And he, and he heals her son and he, and he does this miracle of giving her more food and more food day after day because she was on the brink of starvation. 
And the people of Israel had to wonder, Elijah, why are you spending all this time with somebody who's not us? Shouldn't you be spending your time better with us and not with this one widow? What is one widow's difference ever going to make? You're here for us. And he says, Elijah is the example I'm giving to you, Nazareth. I am here not for everything. I am here for a purpose, and that purpose is determined by God. And then he gives the second example in 2 Kings chapter 5 of Elisha. And Elisha, not only was this prophet that followed Elijah, he was the one who, 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 who healed this guy named Nathan, who was a Syrian and the commander of an army of the king of Syria. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 2. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Nathan's wife. Right? So in this scenario, you see that this Naaman, I'm sorry, Naaman was, was, was this official who was part of this opposing uh, army against Israel, so much so that that army had carried off one of the girls of Israel. And it says, Elisha, instead of spending all this time with the Israelites, he says his one miracle went to this commander of an army of Syria. Fast forward to Nazareth, he would basically be making the, the jump of, I'm here for the Roman official. I'm here to save the Roman official, not take them down to which they would have just been blown away because Elisha and the widow and the woman and the Gentile, you've come for them? That doesn't make any sense, Jesus. And then he goes to the other extreme. And I've not only come for them, I've come for the Roman government. I've come for them and I've come to save the the armies that are against you in Naaman example. And the big thought here is this, where he says they were sent to none of them. They weren't sent to the big places. They weren't sent to do these huge, crazy ministries among the people who should deserve to be in the Israelite nation. Luke wants him to see that Jesus was doing his way of ministry with limits, not to everyone. Jesus' full-time ministry career was meant for a purpose, and he knew his limits, and he knew how to schedule it. He he said his, his ministry not only was for the select few, but he also says his ministry lasted three years. The Son of God's full ministry to save the entire world was three years around this lake and this sea in the Middle East around this small town. Luke shows us that in this scenario, God is in control of our schedules. God is in control of limits. Jesus, the Son of God, being fully God, lived within limits. Not only here, but also in verse 42. This is amazing. The Son of God, in verse 42, when it was day, Jesus, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. But he said to them, I must preach the good news to the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues in Judea, or some translations say Galilee. This idea of sneaking away in Luke is explained in Mark. Mark chapter 1, verse 35 says this, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. His limits pushed him to prayer every single time. His limits were like, I could do a bunch of different things in my morning calendar, right? I could meet with Peter. I could hang out with John. I could do more ministry. I could go to this town. But instead, Jesus' calendar, if you were to look at his calendar, which he didn't have a calendar, which is amazing too, was I am here and I am going to spend time with my father. 
It was practical limitations. He was not afraid of saying the two-letter word that many of us are very scared to say. No. Even some of you in hearing that, you're kind of like, I'm, I'm never, this is just a challenge. When was the last time you said no to a request? Somebody came to you and said, hey, can you help me with? And you're like, ah, no, no, I can't. Many of us in the room were like, yes, yes, I can definitely do that. When? I don't know, but I can fit it in, right? Because that's the kind of person I am. Jesus was not afraid of saying no. And this no, this is amazing. This is the start of Jesus' ministry. This is what no cost him. And then we're going to end with some practical as we close out. This is what the no cost him in verse 29. (laughs) When they heard these things of Jesus setting limits and Jesus not performing the puppet miracles that they wanted him to do, when they heard that he wasn't going to do this in their hometown, (laughs) These things all, here's the word all again, all that were like, this guy's awesome. This guy's amazing. All in the synagogue were filled with wrath. (laughs) And they rose up and they drove him out of the town. They brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. (laughs) Yay, Jesus is here. But passing through the midst, he went away. That no was a brutal no to the people of Nazareth. That no would be seen in all of chapter 4, that there was hostility towards the no's that he gave. But that no was on purpose, and he knew that he was setting a life with limits. So here's some questions I give to you practically, and here's where we close. What would saying no in your life cost you? I'm going to assume it's not being thrown off of a cliff. I'm I'm assuming that. Um, But what would no cost you? Because there probably are some real answers to that. It could cost me a position. At my job, it could cause me climbing up the next ladder. If I say no to my boss, that's really going to limit things because the guy next to me, he's going to say yes, and, and that's going to hurt some things. It could say no financially. And if I say no to certain things in our finances, that could cost us the things we like to do and the things we, the way we like to live. If I say no to that, if I say no in my schedule, it's going to mean somebody else is going to be very disappointed or maybe hurt by me saying no. We can think through that question, but here's a better question I give you this morning, and that is this. What would saying no free you to do? So not as just saying no costing you something. Saying no is actually going to free you to do something else. That no in your job may free you to more time with your kids in that season that you're in right now. That no to that position may be the most wise no you could ever give because you need time with your family. That no could be freedom that you need to spend more time with your spouse in this season. I don't know what that is, but saying no should free you to something. And then last question is this, practically, who do you have a hard time saying no to? Is it your boss? Is it your your spouse? Is it friends? Who do you have a hard time saying no to in your life? Because practically, we need to be able to live within our limits. Here's the reality. You are not God. That role's already taken. As much as your calendar says differently, you are not superhuman, okay? You are not sovereign. Can you just hit that for just a second? Your calendar is not God. There's only one God. He's already got the position filled and you can't have it. So how do we live under the authority of God 
so that we can live within our limits because living within your limits allows God through the power of this Holy Spirit to do things in our lives we're not able to do ourselves. So maybe it's practically before you schedule us asking God through the power of this Holy Spirit, give me wisdom before I answer this. Give me the ability to say no when I want to say yes. And there are practical ways to say no. We can talk about that. But this morning, I think what I really wanted you to hear is this, that you are called to live a life with limits. You are called to live a life that is not dictated by schedules that you make, but you are called to live a life that God has you here on purpose to live and in a season that you're supposed to be in to live within this season. You're never going to have this season again. So don't blow past it trying to get to the next one. Live in the limits of this season, knowing God has called you to it, and see what God does in it, okay? Let me close this in prayer, and then we'll let you guys go. Father, this morning, um, this message is for me. Um, I so often just want to continue to do and do and do, and God, you've reminded me again and again and again. It's not about me doing more. It's about me, honestly, probably doing less, by the power of your spirit, trusting you that you will work. God, here's my, here's my thing that I feel like I'm always guilty of. God, I feel as if I have to do it all because I believe that much about myself instead of just trusting to say you are the one that does it all. I have to trust you with these limits because if you don't move, I can't do anything. So God, this morning, maybe that's what we need this morning is just a reminder that you are who you said you are. We can trust you this morning. We can trust you. God, as we sing out this last song, that's the declaration in the bridge that we trust you because your ways are higher than our own. Your ways are what we want. So as we close out, may this be our declaration this morning. We trust you. Help us to live within our limits. It's in your name we pray. Amen.